Hey, good evening again. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up to 1 John chapter 4 tonight, 1 John chapter 4. And if you don't have a Bible, we've got some under the chairs. You can grab one of those nearby and open it to page 1022 in the black Bibles that you'll see under the chair. Uh, We are entering into this Advent season, and when we say Advent, uh, the word literally means the arrival of a notable person or event. We use that language uh, really just recenter our own minds and hearts that Christmas is ultimately about the arrival of Jesus on the scene, and so that's what we celebrate. It's a unique time in our culture when um, probably more than any other time, non-Christian people are celebrating uh, our Savior. And, and so sometimes that's just full of commercialism and you know full of materialism, but we want to take advantage of this opportunity to have conversations with those who might be talking in circles around our Savior, but not actually seeing our Savior. So we've got some devotionals in the hallway uh, that you can take uh, to read through different scripture readings to help prepare our hearts and focus our hearts around who Jesus is. Um, Great little book. This is free. You can give us extra donations if you want to for this, but uh, we have plenty of extra copies of this. Um, So Advent devotional with scripture readings. This is extra coloring pages uh, for those of you that really like coloring pages, I know, I know you're out there. Um, they say that's like therapeutic for adults now, right? Um, and what else we got in the book? So make sure you grab one of those. We're going through the themes that you see on the wall. Last week, Stephen introduced us to hope, did a great job of showing how the entire Old Testament leads up to this uh, desire for the coming Savior, hoping and longing for him to come and rescue. This week, we're going to focus on love. Next week, joy, and then peace. Again, as we try to uh, awaken ourselves to all that Jesus brought when he was born 2,000 years ago. So in 1 John 4, what we're going to see is all that, that God's love brings to us, what his love actually means. We often mistake love for a feeling in our culture, right? We, we talk about love as just warm sense of uh, affection or infatuation, when really love biblically is much more than that. It's, it's focused action. It's caring purposefully for the good of another person, right? And so we're going to see in the scripture how we're not even really truly able to love another person apart from God's love in our life. And just before we look at the, the text in First John, I just want you to think for a second, just a quick Christmas meditation on what it was like for Joseph and Mary to have Jesus born into their family. Think about their dreams. They're getting married. They're planning a wedding. They're planning to have their own family. They, they've got all kinds of plans, all kinds of dreams that really were interrupted by what God did in their life. And we believe, in retrospect, looking back, and I think even they uh, had faith and believed and trusted that God was doing something good and beautiful in sending Jesus into that family, into that world, into our world. But on the other hand, he he really did upset their plans, right? I mean, think about if if you're about to get married and then some kind of miraculous, crazy thing happens that's going to cause people to think badly of you, to cause you to be the laughing stock of your town. It's going to upset all of your plans. It ended up meaning them having to move to Egypt, right, to another country even temporarily because they were being hunted. I mean, there are all kinds of crazy things that, that came out of this. Yet, we look with the eyes of faith through Scripture and say, this was ultimately God loving the world. And, and so I just want us to use that as a thought to begin with, that, that love from God isn't always easy, and it isn't always convenient. God wants to change your life. He wants to do things in your life and in my life. And they don't always seem like the best idea in the beginning. Um, but part of what we're doing here as we gather and look at the scriptures together is, is we're learning to trust him. We're learning to see that he has our best in mind. So we'll look at First John 4 together. 
reading verses 7 through 21. 1 John 4, 7 through 21. It says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we've come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. We believe this is God's word to us, so I want to pray that we would receive it. It's one thing to say, God, you've spoken to us, but it's another thing for us to hear what he has to say and pay attention. So let me pray that, that we would hear him. God, we pray that you would help us to open our minds and our hearts to you, that we would receive your word, your instruction to us, your encouragement to us. We pray that we'd be changed by it. We thank you that you showed your love to us through Jesus, and we pray that that would change us into the kind of people that actually love others. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we have the the concrete stories of Jesus coming into the world in the Gospels, right? And we've got a lot of readings here. We're encouraging you to follow along in these devotional guides, rereading the Christmas stories, the birth narratives, how that all took place. And then here in, in 1 John, this is written years later after the birth of Jesus, and it's trying to explain to us what that actually affected, right? What happened because of that love, how God's love changes us and makes us the kinds of people that actually love. And so, I want to just kind of give you a summary of where we're headed tonight and then try to march through in order with these verses. Um, Some of these themes are repeated, but we'll kind of bunch them in sections. The first is that his love is the necessary ingredient. And what I mean by that is that our love can't happen unless we have his love first. So his love is the necessary ingredient. And then we're going to look at the idea that his love is displayed through us. So it starts with his love being the necessary ingredient, but then his love is then displayed in our lives, in the lives of broken people like you and me. And then finally, his love gives us grit. His love gives us grit. It gives us actual tenacity, perseverance, endurance, grit in our life. So the first thing I want us to look at is this idea that his love is the necessary ingredient. We'll see that in 1 John 4, verses 7 through 10. And this is repeated in multiple different phrases. He says it in different ways. First way he says this in verse 7 is, beloved, let us love one another for love is from, this is, we'll do a call and response here, okay? Love is from God. All right, good. And whoever loves has been born of and knows. So who's the main point here? God, right? So the point is that God is the one that is 
uh, propping up our love. Propping sounds bad. He's the one enabling, empowering, fueling our love. There's, there's no love that we have apart from him loving us first, as, as is said later on at the bottom of the paragraph, right? We love because he first loved us. So our love comes from God. Verse 8 says, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Now, context of 1 John, we studied it together as a church, went through the whole book uh, three and a half years ago. It was in the summer, uh, 2013. And as we studied 1 John, we saw that much of what John is talking about in this letter is the situation on the ground with this church where false teachers had stirred things up and then left. And so he's trying to clean up the mess. And he's trying to help them to understand that the gospel is more than just something you say. Many people today, especially in America, still believe that kind of gospel where the gospel is just an idea, or the gospel is just a phrase, or it's just a memorized fact. But as we looked at First John years ago, we had this concept of it being something that transforms our head, our heart, and our hands, right? Your head is uh, the things you think, and it's not just right thinking about doctrine and teaching, but it's also how your heart uh, loves God and other people, and it's also what your hands do, right? How you live matters. False teachers will divide those things up and say, no, it's just... It's just thinking the right things, and that's all that really matters. Or it's just having warm feelings, and that's all that really matters. Or maybe it's just doing things, but forget about the doctrine, right? And false teachers tend to just focus on one or the other, but the true gospel affects all of our humanity. And so here that's being reiterated, verse 8, anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. If you believe the right things about God, you'll respond in the right ways. You'll feel the right ways, you'll do the right things, says in verse 9. And this, the love of God, was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Christmas ultimately is about the seriousness of the disaster that we as human beings are and the world that we live in is. There's incredible glory in this world. It's beautiful. Human beings are magnificent. Sunsets are awesome, but we also know we're broken. When we turn on the news, when we read Facebook, when we read a magazine, it's depressing because human beings are always hurting each other. And so what we're seeing is that we, we can't even really live apart from him. Saying we live through him, through his love. God sent his son into the world and that's how we ultimately see that he loves us. By sending his son on this dramatic rescue mission to, to come after us because we couldn't do it on our own. It's not a story of, Hey, everybody, if you try harder, then you can fix the world. No, it's a story of you blew it, I blew it, so he had to send Jesus to come after us and to rescue us. He goes on in verse 10, in this is love. This is probably the strongest statement of his love being the necessary ingredient. He says, in this is love. Here it is. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So he says, this is love. Not that we loved him, but that he loved us. Do you see what he's saying there? Now, if you've read the rest of 1 John, you know he stresses again and again, we need to love God. We need to love each other, right? So he's not saying it doesn't matter if we love or not. He's just saying that ultimately, that's not the necessary ingredient. The necessary ingredient is his his love for us. And then our love is a response. It's always secondary to the the primary force of his love for us. I'm going to read that one more time. He says in verse 10, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. Then how does he explain it? And sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. We saw that big word a few weeks ago. 
in Romans. It's a word that appears several times in, in this translation. In other translations, they like to say atonement. Both of these words uh, refer to the idea of uh, what happened on the cross, right? Atonement connects a little more with Old Testament Hebrew thought, the idea of the sacrificial system and the sins being uh, placed on the goat or the sacrifice, right, and being taken away. And then propitiation connects a little more with the Greek systems, the, the pagan Greek gods where they were angry, but they were made happy by the sacrifices. Um, the word is literally has a closer connection to the Greek concept, but some people don't like that, right, because we don't, we don't like the Greek gods, right? We're Christians. So some people, that's why there's different translations. Um, but I think there's something really beautiful about that more Greek way of looking at it, propitiation, because the word literally means happy. He's made happy with us. And I think that's a really important key to the gospel because one of the things the average Christian struggles with the most is just thinking that God is always disappointed with us. And when I counsel people and I encourage people, that's one of the central things that we have to work through is recognizing in the gospel God is pleased with you. So my question for you is, do you actually believe that? Because that's really the earth-shattering, uh, changes-everything concept of the gospel. That in Christ, God delights in you. That you're not a big disappointment to him. But that he loves you. That he smiles on you. That your sins were pra- placed on Christ on the cross, and all of Christ's righteousness was given to you. That you're hidden in Christ. That you are, you are fully accepted in the Beloved in Jesus. And so that idea is really important. We don't have a lot of good English words to make that connection, right? That's a, that's a big idea with one word, but that's what that word means. It means God is pleased with you. And all of that has been given to us in the cross. And that's the necessary ingredient for us to love anybody else. You'll never really love anybody else unless you understand that you're loved by God, that he paid the price, that he took the first move, that he initiated that love. And so that's what we see here in this text. And I have an illustration that hopefully this is going to be helpful for you if you're a vegetarian. I'm going to apologize right now, okay? So this is a meat-centered illustration. Um, and I was using the illustration this morning. My wife was on the front row just kind of shaking her head like, I don't know about this. But um, just take a hamburger, okay? Hamburger, some of you have had hamburgers before. I love hamburgers, one of my favorite uh, foods. And, and in a hamburger, there's basically one necessary ingredient. You could take away the bread, and it's still a hamburger, right? I really enjoy lettuce burgers. They're great. You wrap them in lettuce. It's like a crispy outer, outer layer, but you still get all the good stuff inside, right? You could take away the mayonnaise. I like mayonnaise, but I could have a hamburger with, with mustard, right? It's still a hamburger. You could take away the bacon, and that's hard because bacon is awesome, but it's still a hamburger. Thank you for that amen. It's still a hamburger, even if there's no bacon, right? It might be a second-class hamburger, but it's still a hamburger, Take away the tomatoes. I have a friend, Chris Webster. We go to lunch sometimes. Leads worship for us. I like to tease him because he doesn't like tomatoes. I love tomatoes. But it's still a hamburger without the tomatoes, right? Take away the lettuce. Take away whatever that other oozy stuff is inside there. You take away these things and it's, it's still a hamburger. But if you take away the beef, remember the 80s commercial? Some of you older folks remember, where's the beef? Yeah, that was such a great commercial. So true, right? It, it's like God's love is, is the beef, of real love in this world, right? It's the essential, primary, necessary ingredient. If you take away the beef, you don't have a hamburger. And that's kind of what he's saying here about God's love. He says it real dramatically there in verse 10. This is love, not our love. It's not our love. It's not about our love. It's about his love. And then he's going to bring all, 
our love back, right? So he's taking our love away as the necessary ingredient, but then he's bringing it back saying, but you got to love each other. If you don't love each other, that means you don't even know that God loves you. So our love matters, but the essential prime mover here is God's love for us. That's what moves us. So here's the way I would say it. Um, If you see his love as being sent into your life, then you'll be the kind of person that wants to be sent or sends yourself or sees yourself as sent by God into other people's lives. You might call that kindness, generosity, hospitality, right? If you believe that's how God has acted in your life, that's going to change how you act towards other people. If you believe that God showed love to you, you will show love to other people. Peter talks about it in his letter that if the fruits of God's spirit, if, if his character is not being manifest in our life, he uses the phrase we're, we're, we've forgotten or we've become blind, right? It's like we're, we're having trouble seeing that necessary ingredient of his love or we're forgetting it, right? A lot of us have, have had this experience of being changed by the gospel. We know that Jesus loves us, it changes us, we start living in a new way, we get busy, kind of slip into serving the old saviors that we've served in the past, right? You begin serving the savior of success in your job. You begin serving the savior of, of pleasing your lover or your circle of friends or seeking comfort in life. Whatever it might be, you start to kind of just turn a little bit to serving these other saviors. And you wake up and you're like, man, I'm not. What happened to the love? And it's because we're, we're no longer seeing Jesus' love as the primary ingredient. I don't think that means you fall out of Jesus' hands, right? Scripture's pretty clear. Nothing can snatch you from his hands, but you need to redirect yourself. And that's what we believe we're doing in Christian worship. That's what we believe when we're doing when we're studying the Bible, when we're reading the Bible on our own, when we're praying. Um, all, All these things we do not to say, look at us, we do Christian things together. But we do these things to to see Jesus' love for us again, right? Because we we all forget it. We need to be reminded and we need to remind ourselves. We need to preach the gospel to each other. We need to preach the gospel to ourselves. When you're driving to work, when you're driving home, you need to be telling yourself, God, thank you for loving me. Thank you for forgiving me for my sins. Now help me to take my mind off me and help me to love other people. And that's a constant process that we're going through. So this next section that he takes us into is then because we've got that necessary ingredient in place, then we're going to love others. That love then that we show is now going to be a response that we do show, and his love is displayed through us. And this is really one of the most risky things I think that God does, is God uses us in his plan, which if you know human beings, is, that's pretty risky, right? Human beings have a bad track record. We don't, we don't have a track record of loving each other very well, but that's God's plan, is to use us. The, the scripture says that we are Christ's body. It's like we're his hands and feet in the world. He's the head, we're the body. We are the means by which Jesus is displayed in the world right now while he sits at his Father's right hand by his Spirit through his gospel. So look at verse 11. It says it this way in verse 11. His love is displayed through us. Verse 11 says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So because of that necessary ingredient being in place, then we'll reciprocate. We'll, we'll love each other. Verse 12, No one has ever seen God If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. See that? Now, this is a little confusing. We have some Trinitarian theology in play here. Uh, We believe, first of all, what's really cool when we think about God's love being primary is that the Trinity always existed, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So there was always this love of a community within God himself. So one God 
three persons, always loving. And so love wasn't some new idea that God came up with because he was lonely and was like, hey, man, I'm just, life stinks without humans. I think I'm going to make humans. You know, it's like he always had perfect love, and it was out of the overflow of that perfect love that he made us. So again, that necessary primary ingredient of, of love was always there. But then also we have this, this picture here of God the Father being invisible. We can't really see him. Jesus says we see him by seeing Jesus. But the, the time of history that we live in right now is that Jesus is reigning in heaven with God. He's not physically here with us. And so again, the New Testament says we're, we're his hands and feet. We, the church, we are his plan. And again, church doesn't mean building. Church means people. God's people. We might gather in a building, right? But, but we're his people. And so God's plan is to display his love through us. So again, with that in mind, no one has ever seen God, right? God the Father can't be seen. But he says, if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. So he's saying, okay, people can't really see God, but they can through us. It's displayed in our life, perfected in us. Now, this word perfect in the scripture, it's important to understand because he's going to use it a few more times. Uh, We usually think of perfect as, I made a perfect score like 100 on a multiple choice test, right? Uh, No error. We think of perfect in that kind of detailed way, but the word perfect biblically is more like a process of moving towards a a proper goal, right? The Greek word is teleos, uh, and we use it in telescope, right? You're seeing something far away, the end goal. Uh, or television, right, broadcasting far away. So the idea is moving towards an end point. And so perfect in the scripture is not like without error, no sin. Perfect is mean, it means this process of you're coming to that maturity that you were made for. And so we're in this process. It's not like if we know Jesus, then we never sin again, but we're moving towards the goal he's made us for. And it says if we love one another, God abides in us, he lives in us, he's displayed through us, his love is perfected in us. Verse 13, he says, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. And so he's saying he gives us his spirit, he abides in us, he lives in us, we abide in him, we're remaining in him, and that's how the world sees him. The world can't normally see God, but if we're abiding in him, if we're living in him, he's living in us, the Spirit's at work in our life. We're being perfected, right? We're moving towards the goal he's made us for. Then, then we're going to be displaying his love. Then people are going to see him and his love through us. I'm going to skip down to the last two verses of our section, verses 20 and 21. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. This commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So again, this is scary, um, but I want to encourage you that even though this seems scary and even though this seems risky, it actually works. Um, I'll throw one more negative out here. Uh, One of the most common reasons I've heard for non-believers leaving the faith or post-Christian people saying, I don't believe anymore, is because of all the hypocrisy they see in the church. All the people that claim to be believers, they see not really living like believers. So again, that's just one more reason to make us think, man, God, are you sure this is, you sure this is the plan you want to go with? Are you sure this is how you want to do things? And I would say Paul has an interesting explanation in Corinthians where he talks about us being jars of clay. Have you ever heard of that section where it says we are these jars of clay? And what Paul is saying is that we're broken and needy, 
and that that's actually how ministry works. Paul is defending his ministry in 2 Corinthians, and he's saying, I'm not perfect, I'm not Superman, I don't have it all together, I'm weak and broken, and that's how the gospel is seen through me. I was actually talking with a pastor about that the other day. He was saying how he, he learned that lesson slowly, because in ministry, that's a, that's a big temptation. If you're a mom and dad, that's a big temptation. If you're a teacher or a commander, that's a big temptation to act like you have all your stuff together. And you're perfect and you don't make mistakes. But it actually helps people to grow when they see you're a struggler that needs other people's help and needs God's help as well. And so that's what Paul explains in 2 Corinthians with this concept of jars of clay. And a beautiful picture of this I've used before. Um, I first learned of this example when Death Cab for Cutie came out with an album a few years ago called Kintsugi. Do we have any people here that practice the ancient art of Kintsugi? Some of you? A few? No? I've got some artists in the room, so I thought maybe. Um, Kintsugi is where you have broken vessels. It's a Japanese art form. I mean, I think people do it other places now too. Break, Break the vessel, and then you seal the cracks with gold or maybe platinum. And so now not only is the vessel repaired, but it's more beautiful than it was before. And that's, that's the picture of what God does in our life. So as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, we're jars of clay so that the glory, so that the awesomeness and grace of God can be seen through us. That it's not us, it's him. And this broken vessel, it's repaired with the gold and with the beauty. The way uh, Switchfoot is a band I love, they have this song that says, uh, the wound is where the light shines through. The wound is where the light finds you. It's this idea that in our woundedness, in our brokenness, that's where we learn to depend on God's grace. If you never had a wound, if you never had a break, if you never had a weakness, then you wouldn't need God. We believe that all human beings need God. And Christians are just the people that are honest about that. That's what we believe. John even says that in 1 John 1, 8, 9, and 10. He says there's two kinds of people. There's people that lie and say they don't have any sin. And then there's the people that confess their sin. and God is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So that's God's plan. You can't even see the gospel unless people are broken. So I would make the, the argument that if people were always perfect and loved perfectly all the time, no one would even see the gospel or see our need for Jesus. And so I'm not calling for us to be more broken, right, and do people wrong so that they'll see the gospel somehow. I'm not, I'm not going there. And again, John sets that right in the whole book. He's always saying, you know, we love, but we have to be honest about our sin, but we also love. We don't continue in our sin. But the sin is there, and this realism of God uses that as he displays his love through us. One thing I've been really encouraged about is how I've seen that at work in our community. Just in the last, I think it's last four weeks now, we've, there's been the loss of three lives. We we lost a soldier to war. Um, We lost a man to cancer. We lost a child to a, um, we had a family lose a child to a miscarriage. That's just in the last few weeks. I mean, that's that's kind of how normal life is in a community of this size. But one of the things that's been really beautiful is as these losses have taken place, I've been out of town for a lot of this, and, and I've been you know, staying in touch and emailing and talking to the other pastors and other leaders of the church, and I'm just hearing these stories of how other people are caring for these communities, right? These people that are struggling and crying and going through loss, there's, there's care taking place. There's love being given. And that's, that's how it's supposed to work. That's how God's love is displayed in our communities, is in our need, we love each other, just as God loved us. God saw us broken and needy, and he came to us. He sent his son for us. And then as we are broken and needy, 
we love each other because of his love. I told you before, in, in 1 John, there's all these different kind of tests and angles that John looks at, the faith and how you know, false teachers tend to divide it up and say it's just what you believe or it's just what you do or it's just how you feel, but really the gospel combines all those things. And so I think that's another way to think about how we love each other. Uh, many of you are gifted in particular ways, right? Like some of you are, are really good at clear thinking. You might be a head person and you might love people with your head, right? With truth, with facts, you know? And one of the ways you might love people is by teaching them or by telling them they're wrong sometimes, right? That's the way some of us love people. Um, some of us uh, are just naturally warm, affectionate people. And we might love people by giving a hug, by crying with somebody, by, you know, as we've seen through the losses that have happened in our community, just weeping with those who weep, rejoicing with those who rejoice. Um, but if that's all you ever do, right, you might be lacking. And some of you are doers. Some of you might just build things for people, right? You might fix things that are broken. You might give a gift. You might serve. You might give your time. All those are beautiful expressions of love among God's people. And I think it's important to recognize that we all need each other because all of those by themselves are incomplete. All of those by themselves are incomplete. We never want to be a church that says we're just one of those things, but we want to always be sharing the gifts we have and also recognizing I need, I need your gifts and I need your gifts and I need your gifts. And so this expression that Paul talks about, again, in Corinthians in, in chapter 12, that we're, we're different body parts, we're different members, but we're one body, and we're all sharing these different gifts and helping each other in that way. One more thing, we'll move on to the last point, and that is we need to be uh, secure enough in the grace that we have in Jesus to ask for help too. Um, and, and I'll just, again, from my own standpoint, I'm tempted as someone who's in kind of professionally the people-caring business, right? I'm tempted to feel much more comfortable caring for people but not asking for help. And I'm sure you're that way too. And I would just say that if you really understand the gospel and God's love for you, that's a humbling thing that, that shows all of us that none of us have it together. All of us need God's help, and, and that should humble us to the degree that we're willing to ask another human being for help. Even though we know that other human being is is broken and weak and may screw things up when they're trying to help us, right? But we should be able to entrust ourselves to other people. And that expression of just humbly entrusting yourselves to other people, that's another marker that you believe the gospel. If you believe that God has taken care of you, has secured your future absolutely, that, that gives you a kind of security out of which you can trust him enough to entrust you to entrust yourself to, to this temporary plan he has, which is life and community with other people. That's his goal, is, is for his love to be displayed through us. So I encourage you to take that risk of asking for help. The last thing I want us to see is that his love gives us grit. His love gives us grit. Grit is this uh, kind of trendy term in psychology and sociology that researchers use to distinguish uh, highly skilled students from less skilled students that still succeed. And they look at this and they're like, wow, this kid didn't do as well on the test scores, yet they, they succeeded. What, what is that? And they call it grit. And basically, it's like perseverance, right? Endurance. And so we've got some words here that remind me of some words we saw a few weeks ago in Romans, but I'm going to go ahead and read through here in the text. We'll see this, this vision of perseverance and endurance, starting in verse 15. It says it this way in verse 15, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we've seen this word abide already, and the word means uh, to remain permanently, to set up shop, to live, to dwell there. 
And so this word abide is a very kind of settled, permanent kind of concept. Verse 16 says, So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides or settles in love abides in God, and God abides in him. And so it's just a piling on of this term, which again is a very deep, permanent, dwelling sort of word. It's like you you live in God. That's where you've made your permanent home. You're entrusting yourself completely to him, remaining there in him. Verse 17 says, by this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. So his love is perfected with us. And again, perfected doesn't mean you never make a mistake. What it means is he is shaping you and maturing you and taking you to the goal that he's designed you for. There's a process happening. His love will not let you go. He's got a hold of you. He's perfecting you. He's taking you to that future that he's made you for. And he says that love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in the world. This confidence then is translated in verse 18 and 19. Look at verse 18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. Whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. So he says we have confidence facing judgment. We're no longer afraid of God's judgment because we know his judgment has been poured out on Christ on the cross. And so we have propitiation, the the happiness of God in us in Christ. And so if you still live with fear in your life, and his perfect love hasn't cast out that fear, I think that tells us two things. One is either you don't recognize the gospel, that judgment has been poured out on Christ on the cross, so you have the pleasure of God, his grace, his delight in you. Or maybe you're fearing something other than God. If you're fearing other things, there is no gospel, right? Or if you're fearing what people think of you, or if you're fearing the loss of your income, or if you're fearing losing your health, if you're fearing these other things, then, then you're not fearing God, right? The New Testament says it again and again, you're not really supposed to fear anything but God himself. And then what we truly fear, God himself, the only one who can truly judge us, then the gospel takes away that fear. The perfect love casts out that fear, so we have peace. So again, two options. Either you don't understand the gospel, or you're fearing some other God, You're serving some other God. So I'd ask you to reconsider that. And again, this goes back to that that primary ingredient, that necessary ingredient of the love that God has for us. And if you see that and you get that straight, then that's going to work out these other things. It's going to take away your fear. It's going to give you confidence. It's going to allow you to abide. Um, Several weeks ago, we saw this word that's translated endurance or steadfastness. And it's the word hupomeno. This word abide is just Minnow. So they're kind of two forms. Hupo minnow is an intensifier. And I told you that hupo minnow is the, the picture of the Roman soldiers that had cleats on their boot sandal things and they would dig into the ground. Talked about how when I played sports, I had to learn to dig into the ground because I'm skinny, right? I, I don't weigh very much. So I could get knocked around unless I dug down and took on the strength of the ground. Same thing for a soldier. He would have to dig in and get deep into the ground. And so we have a related concept here of permanently digging in, setting up shop, saying, I'm going to live here, I'm going to remain here, I'm going to stay here in God's love. And that is the thing that gives you grit. That's what gives you confidence. That's what enables you to endure. That's what gives you a sense of permanence. That's what takes away your fear. One of my favorite 
Uh, pictures of this is uh, in a movie I saw oh, a couple of years ago. I don't know if y'all saw this movie. It was a Mission Impossible movie. In this Mission Impossible movie, the super spy Ethan Hunt is trying to get inside this airplane, and he can't get in, and he jumps on, and he grabs it, and it's like flying with him holding onto the outside, right? And they're trying frantically to get the door open. And I had read an article that made this stick out in my mind because this article was comparing super spy Ethan Hunt, an American, with super spy James Bond, right? So two different set of super spy movies. And the idea was that super spy James Bond just kind of rolls through life being suave and cool. And that's how he, you know, perseveres by just being awesome. But super spy Ethan Hunt is always getting his butt kicked and always getting smacked around and falling down, but he's always getting back up, right? So those are kind of two different kinds of strength, two different kinds of hero um, and I would argue that as Christians, we're a little more like the second part. Obviously, we're not super spies at all, but we're, we're a little more like the one who's always getting knocked down and who keeps getting back up because we have forgiveness and we have grace in this God who says, yeah, I know you're a jar of clay. Yeah, I know you're a broken vessel, but I'm going to work through you. I've, my plan is to display my grace and my power through people like you. And so when you are in those moments of, of loneliness and self-focus and you're thinking, those other people have it all together and I don't and I've got to get it all together before I can be of any value to God or other people. That's a lie. You have to break that thought pattern and say, no, God has said he wants to use me as I am. He wants to use me as this broken vessel. He can use me to love other people because he loved me first. His love wasn't waiting on me to clean up my life. His love came to me in my brokenness. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So see that in your own life, and that will empower you then to love other people. That will give you grit to continue to persevere, to have a reckless abandon to love other people no matter what circumstances throw your way. As we wrap up, think about the love that God has for us. Um, I just want to remind you again that, that this is not a concept. This is not just an idea of God loving you, but this is actually a person in in who God is, he, he gives us himself. He doesn't just send us ideas. He doesn't just send us a religious book, although we're thankful that he gives us his word. He doesn't just send us uh, people to encourage us, although we're thankful that he, he works through other people, but he, he gives us himself. He gives us Jesus who, who died on the cross for our sins, who we are hidden inside and protected in. He gives us his Holy Spirit to remind us of that reality, to abide in us and to empower us to keep going. So this Christmas season, you're going to be pulled in a lot of directions, right? You're going to be pulled in directions of thinking um, that Jesus is Santa Claus and Jesus is spending a lot of money and Jesus is a lot of wild parties and whatever other things you might be thinking about as alternative saviors. Remind your own heart, keep coming back to the biblical story that Jesus is the one who came for you, who loves you, who gave you himself. Let me pray for us and we'll respond and worship together. God, we thank you that you love us. We thank you that you did display your love through Jesus, and then you choose to display that uh, through us to uh, each other in community. We pray that you would help that to be true, that you transform our hearts, that you would make us new. We thank you, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.